Good morning. My name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace South Bay, and uh, as you might be able to tell right now, we are having some technical difficulties. So we are going retro, 20th century, uh, for the sermon this morning. Hope you can bear with us. Uh, The passage uh, that we are talking about this morning is the climax of Paul's argument that he's been making here in Galatians, and it's so important for Christian theology and practice, that we will look at it over two weeks. Now, to briefly summarize, Paul says to the Galatians and to us, you are all sons in Jesus. You are all sons of God in Jesus. And therefore, you are all one in Jesus. So today, we're going to look first at that first point, being a son of God through Jesus. Now, what does that even mean? Well, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Today's reading comes from Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, through chapter 4, verse 7. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, for you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful that you promised to accompany it with your spirit as we hear and listen in faith. Would you help us to do that now? Please apply this to our hearts and enable us to live as new creations in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Two of our uh, favorite shows, my wife and I, uh, are uh, This Is Us and Life in Pieces. And one is a drama and one is a, a crass comedy. I wouldn't suggest either for kids, but they are similar in that at the center of both is a family. Pearson's in one, the Shorts in the other. And these are uh, a mother and father and three grown children, siblings, two brothers and a sister in both, actually. And both shows are about these relationships. And in both, all the siblings are married or have significant others. And um, oftentimes, those spouses or significant others feel left out. At family gatherings, uh, they can be an afterthought. They don't get all of the inside jokes. The bonds between the parents and siblings are annoyingly strong. And of course, this creates conflict between each sibling and their spouse or significant other. And humor when the spouses team up together as outsiders against the family. The spouses will always be in-laws 
second-class family members. Now, maybe you can relate to some part of this. In my family, it's just me and my brother and my parents, and all of us, including my parents, live here in Northern California. But my wife's and my brother's wife's family don't live nearby, so there's a lot of Crossland family gatherings. And sometimes my niece, currently a teenager who likes needling adults, when we're all gathering together for a family picture or something like that, she'll say to my wife and her own mother, you guys really aren't Crosslands. You don't really have to be in this picture. Intimating, of course, that you really don't belong as much as we belong. No one likes feeling like an outsider. And sometimes when we're insiders, we can make others feel like outsiders. And this is what Paul is addressing here. He's made the argument how Gentiles are justified exactly like the Jews are, through faith in Jesus. Both are rescued from the curse of the law, and they're made righteous through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's been a technical, historical, theological argument. And if it stopped there, some Jewish Christians at some point might say to a Gentile or Greek Christian, these Galatians, Yeah, we're all saved by Jesus and Jesus alone, but we are still physical descendants of Abraham, and you're not. When our ancestors were receiving the law on Mount Sinai, your ancestors were still living in caves. You'll always be kind of second-class family members, in-laws, not directly connected. And Paul's point is, no, everyone who is connected to Jesus is an heir of Abraham's and a true son of God. There are no second-class family members. There are no in-laws. What defines Paul's readers and all Christians now is being a son of God through Jesus Christ. This is your ultimate identity. You are a son in Jesus. And that's how we're going to look at this passage this morning. It's just under two points, two different ways you're a son, objectively a son and subjectively a son. So, So our first point objectively sons. We here uh, have two paragraphs, and the second paragraph repeats, explains, and amplifies the first. I want to focus here on verse 26, where Paul writes, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now Paul gives a fuller explanation of this in chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, where he writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God's work in Jesus wasn't simply to justify us, give us forgiveness of sins, make us right with him and each other, and then send us on our way. He wanted a family. He wanted to make us sons. And so, Paul writes that in Jesus, we are adopted into God's family as his sons. Notice I'm not saying sons and daughters. The language here is sons, not children. Men, women, boys, girls, in Jesus are all sons. Now, of course, it's legitimate to say that in Christ, we are sons and daughters of God. We are God's children. But for the purpose and meaning of this passage it's important that we retain the language of sonship. Why? Well, because the question between Paul and his opponents is, who are the legitimate heirs of Abraham and all the promises God made to him? 
Who rightfully inherits all of his blessings, resources, and responsibilities as Abraham's seed? In this time and place, first century Greco-Roman culture, only legitimate sons were legitimate heirs. And the firstborn son usually inherited the lion's share. Only through him did the true family name, honor, and wealth proceed. Were Gentile Christians full-fledged members of God's family? Maybe they were family members, but not really legitimate sons. Maybe only physical descendants of Abraham could be true heirs, these false teachers might have been saying. Paul says, no way. Look at verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So this language of sonship, it's not about excluding women or daughterhood. It's about making a case in a particular cultural context about who the full-fledged family members of God are, who rightfully inherits Abraham's legacy. In that sense, women and girls in Jesus are sons too. And of course, we read elsewhere that men and boys in Jesus are part of the bride of Christ, the church. So, Paul says in verse 5 that everyone in Jesus has been adopted into God's family as sons. Now, how does this adoption work? Well, like most modern adoptions, it is something that is done to us. From the outside, it happens to us. Paul explains that when the time had come, when conditions were just right, God sent his son, Jesus, to enter the human race, not just to become a human, but to become a Jew, to live under the law, fulfill all of its obligations. He was the seed and heir of Abraham. Jesus was the faithful Jew. And by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, Jesus won the right to extend his righteousness and blessedness far and wide. Paul calls that redemption, which simply means purchasing people out of slavery. To become a Christian is for Jesus to purchase you out of slavery. Slavery to whatever has you in bonds, right? whatever your fate might entail, but ultimately culminating in death and judgment. Jesus' righteousness is credited to you. You are freed. But he doesn't just send you on your way to go and figure out life. He actually places you in God's family. You are adopted in And this is legal terminology, because adoption was a very common legal act in the ancient Greco-Roman world, but it didn't happen for the same reasons as it happens today. Today, most most adoption happens because people want a child or more children. They want a larger family, and or they see kids in hard situations, and they want to give them a better life. Adoption is done out of an abundance of love and compassion, Not so much in the ancient world. Let's do a little history. How well do you know your Roman emperors? Can you name a good emperor? Can you name a bad emperor? And some of you right now, probably guys, are thinking about the movie Gladiator. Commodus was a bad emperor. Marcus Aurelius' father was a good emperor. And that's as far as Gladiator goes in telling anything of historical accuracy. Yes, Commodus was a bad emperor, Marcus Aurelius a good emperor. Can you think of any other good emperors? Well, you might think of Trajan or Hadrian, certainly Caesar Augustus. Can you think of any bad emperors? Nero, Caligula, perhaps, and Commodus. Did you know that almost all of the good emperors of the Roman Empire were adopted? 
Augustus, Antoninus Pius, Trajan, Hadrian, Marcus Aurelius, all adopted. And it it was when Marcus Aurelius made his son Commodus, his biological son, the emperor, that's when the government started to decline. What's going on here? Well, here's the thing. Most of these emperors were not found as children in orphanages by the current emperor. They were adopted in adulthood by the current emperor in order to eventually take over the empire. They were already qualified, effective men. Because back then, you adopted to secure your family name, your family wealth, your family legacy. Families of means didn't want lots of children. That's expensive, and it threatens the inheritance. Therefore, there was a lot of abortion, a lot of extramarital affairs producing illegitimate children that you could ignore, a lot of abandoned babies in the streets, particularly little girls. Only Christians picked up these abandoned babies and raised them. Otherwise, they would die of exposure or become slaves. For a good Roman family, it was one son and done. And if that didn't happen, you had to adopt a son. So Roman families adopted sons in order to take over the family business, take over the the running of the family. They wanted a decent heir. Adoption was not done out of affection or sympathy. It was a strategic choice for family longevity. Now, I've never heard of a modern adoption that was about finding a good heir for the family fortune or business. But the way God adopts us through Jesus is a mix of both the modern and the ancient adoption practices. Being redeemed out of slavery is like being found in an orphanage or being found as abandoned on the street. Jesus rescues us out of this at great cost to himself. He himself gets abandoned and cast off. He gets abused. He gets tortured and killed on the cross in order to set us free out of this slavery, that we might be adopted. There is deep affection and sympathy for us. But God has a purpose beyond simply rescue. He is moved by more than just pity. He wants heirs. Jesus is king, and he wants co-regents with him, millions of them. This is humanity's original design, to be good kings of creation, And we failed at that. So God in Christ came himself as a human to do it in order to restore us to our original purpose. To be a son in Christ means you are an heir of the king, a co-ruler of the cosmos. And this is what God has for you. This is why he adopted you. And it's official. You have an adoption certificate. It's your baptism. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is the outward sign. It is the official public statement. You are in Christ. You are an adopted son of God. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, okay, so God adopted me not simply out of pity because I was pathetic and needed rescue, but because he wanted me to become and do something special? To play a significant role in his family and creation? Man, he must be disappointed. Larry Crabb, a Christian writer and therapist, tells this story about someone he was counseling. 
a 34-year-old son of a wealthy businessman, came to his father's deathbed. And the last words he heard from his father's mouth were these. I've left you my company in the will. If I had another son, I'd have left it to him. You are now in charge. My guess is you'll take about a year to destroy everything it took me a lifetime to build. This is a father who would have liked Roman adoption. Of course, these words cursed his son. Therefore, he struggled with depression. He did spend money unwisely. He drank too much. The son had a hard time finding the courage to go on. God the Father would never say this to you. Some of us have had fathers we've never known, or fathers who have hurt us terribly and failed us, or fathers who have neglected us, or fathers we feel like we have to impress. But God is not a father like that. Others of us have had great fathers. I have a great father. You know what a good earthly father does for you? He loves you in a way that your heart is shaped and ready to receive God the Father's love. It's not strange or alien. It actually makes sense. My dad loved me this way. I guess God could love me this way too. That's a father's job. And when we haven't experienced that from our earthly father, it can seem strange and alien to get that from God. But listen, God chose to adopt you out of slavery, whether as a child or adult. He wants you. He paid for you at great cost to himself. His only begotten son going through hell to rescue you from hell. God knew what he was getting when he adopted you, and he wanted you. He knew your weaknesses. He knew your mess-ups. He knew your disordered loves and affections. He knew your secret thoughts and habits. His son paid for all of those on the cross. So that means in Jesus, you are a son. You are an heir. You have the blessing, ability, responsibility of participating in the family business and representing the family name. In Jesus, you have been adopted into God's family. It's objectively true. Now again, remember, this is a dispute between Paul and these false teachers as to who is really a part of God's family and a legitimate heir of Abraham. These teachers might counter what Paul was saying by saying that, well, sure, maybe the Gentiles are adopted in, but we are naturally God's children. In fact, throughout the Bible, Israel is called the son of God. Israelites are sons of God, right? So, no big deal, right? Now the Gentiles are sons like we've always been sons. But they're the newbies. They're the add-ons. They're the in-laws. But something new has happened. Paul says in verse 5 that we, Gentile and Jew alike, have received adoption as sons. Everyone is in the same new boat. And that new boat is the Holy Spirit. Believers in Christ are not only objectively sons, but subjectively sons too. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Look, you can be told over and over again that you are loved, you are chosen, that there is purpose and meaning for your life, 
right, that you actually are a family member and you can do the family business of God, right, that, that you belong and you have these privileges and responsibilities. It's one thing to hear that. It's quite another to really believe it. The way that both Jew and Gentile can believe that they have been adopted into God's family and experience it, the way they can actually live as family members and do the family business is by having the spirit of God's son, Jesus, take up residence in our hearts. God's spirit recreates, renews, renovates our hearts so that we can begin seeing ourselves as redeemed and live as redeemed. What is the proof that God's spirit lives in us? It's not doing miracles. It's not speaking in strange languages or tongues. It's not having some new talent. It's not having some new knowledge or skill with the Bible. It's not even new victory over sin. The chief sign and proof of God's spirit being alive in you is being able to cry out to God, Abba, Father. This is how Paul put it in Romans 8. We actually read it as our assurance of pardon today. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with, with Christ. Notice here he talks about children more than sons. It's not that we have some new alien spirit speaking in and through us and saying things that we're not a part of. This is not like demonic spirit possession. God's spirit enables us to speak to God as a child of God. God's spirit convinces our hearts that we truly are adopted into God's family and are his sons and heirs. Because God's spirit is the spirit of his son. You cannot truly approach God as Father without the Spirit of His Son, Jesus Christ. Did you catch that there? That's the Trinity, right there. Look at verse 6 again. And because you are sons, God, the Father, has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. When you do the simple act of calling God Father in faith, like we do at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, our Father, you are doing that by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of the resurrected Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God the Father. Just that little prayer, and all the persons of the Trinity are engaged. The Holy Spirit places you in Jesus to get you to the Father. And that's the same path the Father took in reverse to get to us. As we just read, God the Father sent God the Son into the world to redeem us. And then he sent God the Holy Spirit into our hearts that we might cry out to him as sons. God extends himself from heaven, not just into the world, but into our hearts. He extends his very self into our very being. There's no other religion anything like this. Instead of working our way to God, God works his way down into our hearts. And he does it through the brutality of the cross underwent by the Son. This is profound. Now, this might sound abstract to you, but here's the point. What does the Spirit enable you to do to cry out to God? Abba, Father. 
Abba, as many of you know, is Aramaic for Papa. It's a familiar term for Father. But of course, the Galatians don't speak Aramaic. Jesus did. Jesus called God Abba. No other rabbi ever dared call God Abba. But Jesus did because he is God's unique son. And when we call God Father, Abba, we are doing so in and through the being of Christ, his spirit. We are accessing the interior life of the Son of God in that moment. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. And when you do something as simple as pray in faith, our Father, you are speaking the language of Jesus. Only Jesus could say that. And you're speaking from within Jesus, by his Spirit, to God the Father. You are participating in real time with the Trinity. This is union with Christ. This is how it works. He in us by his spirit, we in him responding in faith. This is how Jesus put it when praying to his father in John chapter 17. I ask that my disciples may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This is what verse 6 is describing. When you cry out to God as your father, you are directly connected to Jesus. You are in Jesus. When Jesus was exulting and happy, when he was shaken to the core, when he was sweating blood with fear, when he was interceding for his people, when he was slowly dying on the cross, he was calling out to his father, his experience, his life, his love, his spirit lives in his people. As you trust in Jesus, you now participate in that same relationship and connection. You are a son of God, and you prove it to yourself when you cry out to God as father. You want to experience union with Jesus? Talk to God as your father. Jalen Rose was a professional basketball player. Now he's a full-time sports commentator. But I knew of him when he was a young man. He was 18, and he was a part of the Michigan Fab Five college basketball team in the early 90s. I hated the Fab Five because I was a Duke fan. Now, Rose was an incredible player, and that makes sense because his dad, Jimmy Walker, had been a wonderful NBA all-star in the 70s. But Rose never met his dad. Walker abandoned Rose and his mom when he was a baby. And Rose and his family never received child support or any kind of care or acknowledgement. He grew up very poor. And Rose was determined that one day his dad would know his name. His dad would have to acknowledge him. And it came to pass, when he was in college making national news, Rose got a letter in an envelope from his father, Jimmy Walker. But it was the middle of the NCAA tournament. Rose wanted to stay focused, so he didn't open the letter. He didn't open it after the tournament. 
He didn't open it after he graduated college. He didn't open it after joining the NBA. He didn't open it after someone gave him his dad's phone number. He opened it finally after eight years. Rose finally picked up the phone and called his dad. And they spoke. And it was good. And they would talk again by phone. But they never got together. And several more years go by. Jimmy gets cancer and dies. Father and son never met face to face. Waiting eight years to open that letter cost Jalen Rose. We have not been left or abandoned or orphaned by God. And there's a letter addressed to us from him. It's his spirit. Open it. We will find that he loves us and we are his sons and he has moved heaven and earth to adopt us. He will enter our hearts and never leave us or forsake us. If you want that letter, Jesus says all you have to do is ask. He reasons that if even earthly fathers can give good gifts to their children, how much more will our heavenly father give us the Holy Spirit when we ask? You want to be a son? You want to be adopted by God? Just ask. Some of us have been trying to serve God without reading that letter. Or we read the letter long ago and forgot about it. Read it again. Cry out to Abba, Father, by the Spirit of Jesus. Listen to what God's Word says to you. The last verse of this passage, 4, verse 7. So, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, this is not just repetition summarizing previous points. There's something unique about this sentence that doesn't really show up in English. Most New Testament letters are written to churches and groups of people, and so the statements and commands are always given in the second person plural. Y'all, yous, yuns. And this is how most of Galatians is written as well. Interestingly, though, here in this sentence, Paul switches to the singular, you. You, individual, man, woman, child. You, listening to these words. You in Galatia. You in Silicon Valley. You specifically are a son. You need to know this. You are not just the weak link in an otherwise strong chain. You are not in by default. You have not gone, un, gone unnoticed or, or fooled anyone. You have the spirit of God living in you. You are known. You are wanted. You are loved. And you are capable of amazing things because you are a son. You are not second class. You are not an in-law. So you can give up on performance or achievement or living up to some standard or law to prove your worth or prove you belong. You are a son in Jesus. You belong. Let's pray. God, again, we are grateful for this word, and we ask that you would help us to hear and believe. And again, we are reminded that we can only do that with the help and by the power of your Holy Spirit, the spirit of your son, Jesus. Father, Son, Spirit, we are so grateful that you have worked to be able to reside in us and make us sons, make us heirs of Abraham, heirs of the cosmos. 
Help us to see that and to realize that and to live in that truth today, that we might truly live and walk as sons of the King, and that we might joyfully invite others into this relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.